one of the great blessings that God's provided me and through the years is to be able to go on both long-term and also short-term missions. And Brother Elijah uh, McNeil had to think about your dad. <laughs> Brother Elijah McNeil is with us this evening and he actually went to Jamaica one time with us and, and uh, it was really great to have him and I enjoyed working with him. I don't remember who all were with you, but I do remember you being there and, and having a good part, a good uh, part in that work. If you didn't know the name, I, I mentioned this to Elijah when he first came in, but the name Elijah is the opposite of Joel. Elijah is actually comes from Elohim and then the Jah at the end of it is Jehovah, and it literally means uh, Eli or uh, not uh, Elohim is Jehovah, and Joel is the opposite of that, means Jehovah is Elohim. So anyway, it's kind of an interesting correlation. I don't remember when I came up, discovered that, but I remember when I did finally one day. It was actually it was during the study of Joel. And one day it just woke up, wait, I never realized that before, but it's kind of an interesting correlation. But that's not our purpose in, in this, this evening. Now, I don't preach in America like I do in Jamaica. In Jamaica, I'm all over there everywhere and pretty loud because that's how they do things. And so I just try to fit into it and it works out very well and they appreciate that. But anyway, here I'm a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more set back, normally at least, in preaching. Okay, so am I important to God? You know, all of us have different times when we ask ourselves, well, you know, God is so concerned with different things and he's, he has so many concerns. Am I, am, is he concerned with me? Or we might say, well, he is so busy in heaven. And you could just imagine all the things that God has to do in heaven. I mean, after all, he looks over all the world. He looks over all the natural laws. He looks over all the people. He looks over all the animals. And he takes care of all those things. Well, God is so busy in heaven, does he have time for me? Or we might say, I am here on the earth and so removed from God. Now, that's really in, in the next statement that I have is similar to this. And well, all these statements are very similar, but that's really the deist view. The deist thought that, and there's been a number of deists through the years, but the deist thought that God is way, is well, way over there in heaven. And here I am on the earth. Does he really have concern with me clear back down here on the earth? Or does God really care about me? I'm not talking about just generally the facts that God cares about me, but does he really care about me? Or many of my problems are so small compared to other people's problems, and we can all look at other people and we can see the great problems that they have. And we say to ourselves, oh, my problems are so small. I just don't want to be, a bother uh, to be bothersome to God. And I think a lot of us have felt these very things. But let me assure you that God does care about us. 
Psalm 8 is a very interesting psalm. And in my mind, Psalm 8, we know that David was the penman of this particular psalm. And when he penned those things, I think he was probably out among the stars of heaven. And he was looking at the stars and looking at how vast they are. Now, more than likely, all of us have been out in the, out in the dark someplace, way out in the wilderness, and we've looked up in the heavens and we looked at all the beautiful and magnificent stars. And this is what David in part said. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? But when we consider all the vastness of the universe and all the things that the universe entails, and here we are, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been up in a jet plane or, or looked down from somewhere way up above and you look down and see, and, you know, cars just look like little ants and you can't even see people down below. And you think, wow, I'm just a little tiny speck. I'm nothing more than a particle of dust here on earth in comparison well, that's what David must have felt at that particular time. Now, David, in the remainder of that psalm, he went on to help us to understand that God is concerned with us, and we should be concerned as well. Now, the, the, really the thesis of this particular lesson or our purpose is to look at the fact that, yes, God is or we are important to God, and that we must always remember that we are important to God. And we're going to look at some P words, and if you know me, I like to do alliterations. And so I've, I chose some P words to help us to understand that we are important to God. And the first P word is, my importance is seen by God's passion. Now what do we mean by passion? Well, the word passion can mean a number of different things. It can mean a reference to... When we talk about the passion of Christ, we're talking about his death, burial, and resurrection and the different things that are associated with that. But what I'm talking about as far as passion is concerned is his love. God loves us. He's passionate for us and so much so that he was willing to give his life for us. We all know the familiar passage, John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we could add to that, though this is not on the slide, but 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, or verse 16 rather. Hereby perceive we the love of Christ, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So hereby perceive we. It is through that that love that we perceive his love for us and the things that he's provided for us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul wrote it this way, but God commendeth his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we all recognize, at least I hope we do, that we have sinned. And while we are shaking our fist at God, and that could be said of a number of different people that we know within our world. I hope that none of us at least 
openly would do something like that. But yet when we deny the Lord and we do not do His will, that's really what we're doing. But still, God loves us. And when we shake our fist at God, I hope that we come to the realization that God still loves us, that God still is concerned for us, and that we will repent and turn back to Him. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Thereby the world, or therefore the world, knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Behold, what manner. Now I could just imagine listening to John if he was preaching this, not just simply writing it, but as he preached this concept. Behold, what manner of love. All the different things that God has provided for us. We see his passion. We see his love for us. The second P word that I chose is we know our importance because of God's proclamation. Now the proclamation is a proclamation of hope. In Romans 5 and verse 2, Paul wrote, By whom, that is by Christ, also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, the Bible is a message of hope. And let us never forget that it is a message of hope. It's not a message of existence here on earth, but it's the message of hope in the eternal end. Well, in talking to different ones, in the past few months because of the things that have come upon me and others of my age, then, you know, the fact is, I don't know about everybody else, but I know what I look forward to. I mean, it's paradise. If we are faithful with God, we have the hope of paradise. And, you know, there are places that I'd like to visit, and I'd like to visit some places again, but, you know, there's nowhere that I want to be more than paradise. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We have that hope, and we ought to always remember the hope uh, that we have. But it's also a message of salvation. Now this is the passage that Brother Paul dealt with this morning. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So it is a gospel of salvation. It is a message of salvation. God desires every single one of us to be saved. And we'll look at that in more detail in a little bit. But it is a message of salvation. Now we can't go to the Bible and pick and choose and expect to have the salvation that God's promised to us. But that's what a lot of people do. They go to the Bible and they say, well, I like this verse and I like that verse and I like this verse and I like this verse. That one I don't like. This one I don't like. So they follow the ones that they want and then they have a false sense of security, a false sense of salvation. That's not the way it works. We have to look to the rule book. We have to look to the guidebook. We have to look to the map that God has provided for us and follow that map in order to get to the, to the heavenly abode. But then it is also a message of justification. If you didn't know, 
The word in the original for justification, the word for righteousness or righteous, there's actually different forms of each of those words to be justified, to be made just, things like that, or to be made righteous or to be, to be right or upright. Those are all the same word in the original language. There's no difference in those words. It's just the, the way that it's used in English is how they decided for that. And we know that it's a message of righteousness. We know that it's a message of justification. We know that God provides righteousness for us. That he himself shows his righteousness, but he also declares how we can be righteous. And I believe both of those concepts are found there in Romans 1 and verse 17. But in Romans chapter 5 and verse 18, by the righteousness of one. Now who's that? Talking about Jesus. By the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life, unto the righteousness of life, in other words. And then we know that God, or that we are important to God because of God's patience. You know, aren't we glad that our parents were patient with us? <laughs> I mean, I was a pretty ornery little snot. And my, my parents were pretty patient. My mother was extremely patient. My dad wasn't quite as patient as she was, but my, you know, I appreciate my dad. And he tried to teach us the right ways to go. Well, you know, aren't we glad that the first time we sinned, that God just didn't send a lightning bolt and consume us? That it, he didn't act like John and and uh, his um, uh, uh, son of Zebedee, John the son of Zebedee, and his brother acted in being the sons of thunder. Shall we call God a, a lightning from above, consume this city because they've rejected the message? Well, we're thankful that God's not that way at all. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Have you ever wondered why God has tolerated man for so long? I mean, think about it for a second. Here, you, here he created man. He put him in the beautiful garden. And what did man do? I mean, God just gave him a simple commandment. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of, food, uh, of good and evil. And what did man do? Eight of that tree. And you go on down through a period of time, and we get to the time of the flood, and the every imagination of the heart was evil continually. And God destroyed the earth by water. I think if I was God, I would probably just destroyed it altogether. But instead, He saved eight souls. But have we really become any better than that? No. Aren't we thankful? for the patience of God, not only on an individual level, but as far as the world is concerned. We ought to be thankful for God's patience. We also learn of Paul, or rather God's intention in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, here's the application that I chose for this particular point. And that's found in James 5 and verse 7. James wrote, 
Be patient, therefore, brethren. Since God is patient with us, we ought to be patient with one another. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rains. Well, like the farmer is patient for his fruit that, that he plants that seed in the springtime and several months pass before he gets the fruit, we ought to be patient with one another and with God and his coming. But then we understand our importance by God's promises. Well, there are a lot of promises within Scripture, but the one that always stands out to me of course, we could look at several different passages, but I chose the one that we're going to consider is Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. In hope of eternal life. I mean, isn't that the hope that we have? Isn't that the promise that we're looking for ultimately? The eternal life that God's provided for us, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. His promises are built upon the fact that he does not lie. Think about that for a second. I mean, when you consider the promises of God, and I've heard people say, well, I just wonder if there's going to be enough room in heaven for me. Well, there's a lot of things wrong with that. And the first thing, I suppose, would be the fact that we're thinking about heaven like a physical place. It's not a physical place. There's plenty of room for each one of us. But the fact is... It's built upon the promise of God. And God cannot lie. If God promises eternal life to those that are obedient to him, then the fact is, eternal life will be given to us. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. But also think about this while we're talking about eternal life. Because sometimes people think about eternal life in the sense of, of expansion of time. I mean, you know... When we've been there 10,000 years, we know less days than when we began. And that's what we think about, just days upon days without an end. But that's really not what eternal life is. Eternal life is really about the quality of life, not the quantity of years. It's about the quality of life to be with God for eternity, not about the quantity of years. In the sense of a quantity of years, who doesn't have eternal life? I mean, even those that are departed and, and lost in hell, they have eternal life. It's eternal destruction, but it is to, still eternal life in that sense. But that's not what God promised us. That's not what Jesus promised us. It's that quality of existence with our Father who is in heaven and with his Son and with his Spirit. But then there's the promise of peace. Now, I've always been fascinated with the book of Philippians. And, and I don't know, one day I was studying the book of Acts and, and it just all of a sudden dawned on me. You know, the Philippians knew what peace, true peace was. I mean, think about the beginning of the church at Philippi. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had gone to the city of Philippi. They were preaching and teaching the gospel. They first taught the women there by the, by the riverside, and Lydia was the first recorded European convert. And then they, Paul cast out the spirit of divination from a maiden lady, and the city officials were angry. 
because they had taken away some of the profit of the, of the merchants. And so they, th they threw Paul and Silas in prison. Well, here they are in prison, and what do we find Paul and Silas doing? They're in stocks, they're in the inner prison, it's what we would call the dungeon, and they're singing praises and praying to God. And the prisoners heard, and the jailer must have heard as well. And the earthquake came, and you know, you talking about an unusual earthquake. It's not the normal earthquake. I mean, the only thing that appears to have taken place is the prison doors were open. Nobody was hurt, but the prison doors were open and Paul could have got away. The jailer seeing the scene, he decided to kill himself. He was going to fall upon his sword and pierce himself through and kill himself. But Paul said, do thyself no harm for we are all here. And they took him the same hour of the night. And Paul then expounded upon the gospel to the jailer. And the jailer responded to the gospel and was baptized along with his household. Now, that's the beginning of the church in Philippi. Paul left Luke there with that church to work with that congregation. And the next time you come to, the, to Luke within the book of Acts, he's at Philippi. So we know that Luke was left behind. You think the church at Philippi knew what peace was? Yeah. Peace is not, the biblical peace is not the absence of hostility. Paul knew what hostility was. He was beaten. He was put in stocks. He was put in the inner prison. But they knew what the peace that passes understanding was. It was an inner peace. It's not an outward peace. It's an inward peace. And so Paul then said, And the peace of God which passes understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, or through Christ Jesus. And so there's the promise of peace that we have. And then the promise of assurance. It is impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of hope set before us. Hebrews 6 and verse 18. Now we talked about the promise of eternal life or the hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie. And I've heard people say things like, well, I sure hope there's room in heaven for me. Well, as I said before, there'll be room God promised it, we can be assured of it. If God promises it, there's no ifs and buts about it. It's going to take place. Well, then my importance is seen by God's provisions. Well, God provides for all of us in a lot of different ways. In Matthew chapter 6 and verses 25, it actually goes to the end of the chapter there, verse 34. But Jesus said, take no thought for your life what ye shall put on, or what, ye sh or what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, or what, um, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body and the raiment? Well, the very next verse, he talked about the birds of the, of the air. He said, they toil not, neither, or they, uh, um, 
They don't labor. They don't gather into barns. But your heavenly Father feedeth them. And then he asked an important question. Are you not much better than they? We're, we're better than the birds of the air. And if God take care, takes care of the birds of the air, will he not take care of us? God provides for us. And then later on in the same passage, he talked about the flowers of the field, how they, they, they do not spin, they toil not, neither, neither do they spin, and yet he said that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God therefore so clothed the grass of the field, why are we so concerned about the clothes that we wear? Well, that's basically the thought there. But then in verse 33, he made the application. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You see, we can see that we are important to God because of the great provisions that he provides for us. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, now this is written to Christians, and they, we have those blessings, the spiritual blessings from, uh, uh, from God that are only for us. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, these are spiritual blessings. God provides blessings for all mankind in the sense of his provisions. It's for everybody. But the spiritual blessings for you and me, for those of us that are in Christ. The fact is, and the bottom line is, that God provides all men, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He provides for us all, all those different things. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17 in verse number 28. But in verse 25, He said, For He provideth life and breath and all things. He giveth to all. He doesn't need us. We need Him because He provides life and breath and all things. But then we can also see our importance to God by His power. God has the power to destroy, but he also has the power to create. Now, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's absolutely mind-boggling to, to think about the fact that God planned in eternity to send his son into this world. He knew before he ever said, let there be light. He knew what men would do. He planned an eternity to send his son. And he was manifested in these last times for us. Now that's 1 Peter chapter 1 verses uh, 18, or 16 to 18. And so he planned it from, from the very eternity. He had the power to destroy, but he chose to create instead. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1. God also has the power to condemn, but he chose to save. Again, John 3, in verse, instead of verse 16, we're going to look at verse 19. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why Jesus came. Now, we've talked about it before, and I think everybody will understand that his first coming was for the, for the salvation of man. 
His second coming will be for judgment. Well, we need to be prepared for that judgment day. It's going to come one day. And, but God, nonetheless, shows his importance because he sent his son that we, through him, might live. But then God also has the power to alienate, but he chose to reconcile. Now, to alienate is to separate himself from us. And he has the power to do that. And one day he will separate himself from those that are lost. He will alienate all of them from him. They'll be in an eternal state of destruction. But he chose to reconcile. And to reconcile literally means to bring back together. And that's what God does. We are separated. But why are we separated? Well, because of... Of Isaiah chapter 59 and verses 1 and 2. The Lord's hand is not slack concerning this promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward. Uh, as some men count slackness, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. You see, God has separated himself from us, not because of anything that God's done. But it's because of what we have done. He has separated himself from us. But he chooses to reconcile. He wants us to come back to him. He wants us and desires for us to return to him. He wants to bring us back together with him. And having made peace through the blood of the cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Colossians 1 Verses 20 and 21. And finally, my importance is seen by God's presence. Now, not presence, but presence. <laughs> so a little bit different there. You know, it's just think about it this way. We'll usually synonym of this here in just a second. Sometimes when the kids, when they were younger, and then we, I do it with the grandkids too, and I'll, I'll talk about it at Christmas time, the presents under the tree. And I'll say, you want to know what's, what's in your present? And they'll, of course, they'll say, well, yeah, Grampy, I want to know what's on, what, what my present is under the tree. And so I said, well, come over here and sit on my lap and give me a kiss, and I'll tell you what your present is. And they'll come over and they'll give me a kiss. They'll sit on my lap and I'll say, it's a gift. That's what we're talking about here. I don't tell them specifically what it is, but just that it is a gift. Well, that's what God's provided for us. And that's what we mean by presence. So it's the gift of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the gift of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Now, I know what the religious world talks about this verse, and they talk about God's favor and God's gift, and we don't have to do anything to obtain it. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about all that God's provided for us is his grace. Everything that he provides for us is under this, this broad idea of God's grace. It is God's grace that he provides that's what God provides, but we have to respond to God's grace how? With faith or through faith. 
Faith is the, the in totality of all that we do in response to God's grace. It would include all the things. It would include faith. It would include the idea of belief, rather. It would include more than that, is acting upon that belief. But the fact is, if we really believe something, are we not going to act upon it? And what I've always said is this. If a person came in, and we know this person, and we know that he's kind of a little bit of a jokester, and he, he says to us, your house is on fire. What are we going to say? Yeah, buddy, your head's on fire too. I mean, you know, we're going to joke with him back. But if a officer comes in, he's in a uniform, he's got a badge and all the things that are associated with that, and he says, I need to talk to Mr. So-and-so. And he walks up to that person and he says, sir, your house is on fire. You need to go with me. Are we going to act? Yeah, we're going to believe it because he's a credible witness and we're not going to mistrust. Now, how much more credible can you be than God who does not lie? You see, he's a credible witness and we must act upon what we believe and we act upon it in, in um, uh, keeping his truth. But then he also provides, well, in fact, I put uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. As far as this world is concerned, each day is a shadow of turning. Every day is a shadow of turning. And there's no promise of tomorrow, but it's also, also the fact is there's nothing that stays the same as far as this world is concerned. Now, I grew up in a small town in Kansas, and sometimes I think, well, it's going to be just like I left it when I, when I left home when I was younger, but it's never the same. There's always something that changes within it. And now it's really changed a lot because my parents do not live there any longer. But nonetheless, things change. And it is interesting, the part of the cemetery that my parents are buried in, in that small town, is where we used to play ball when I was a kid. Things change. That's the shadow of turning. The sun rises from in the east, and the shadow points west. And the sun goes down in the west, and the shadow points east. That's the shadow of turning. That's the way this life is. But every good gift and every perfect gift is from the Father above. There's no changing with Him. He is going to always be the same. Well, am I important to God? Well, we've seen our importance. We've seen the fact that we are important by His passion, His prophecies, His patience, His promises, His provisions, and His power and His presence. We are important to God. But notice the common denominator of all of this. It's God's. God's passion. God's prophet, uh, promises. That should be promises, not prophecy. Or proclamation, not prophecy. The God proclamation. God's patience, etc., etc. You see, God is the center of all this. We are important to God. 
And there's no doubt we are important to God. And we've established the fact that we are important to God. But you know, there's one more thing we ought to consider with all of this. Is God important to you? Now I think we would all say, well, yes, he's important to me. But then we would have to ask ourselves, just how important is God to you? You are so important to him. And all those things establish just how important you are to him or how important I am to him. But how important is he to us? Is he important to us like, I don't know, like the various things of this world? I hope he's more important than that. I hope he's so important to you that you're willing to put him first. I mean, do his will above our own will, to do his bidding above our own bidding, to do the things that he calls upon us to do. And no matter what that is, we're going to do it, and we're not going to question it. We're just simply going to do his will. This evening, we do want to offer the invitation. But I want you to think as we sing the song of invitation about our importance as far as God is concerned, but how important is God to us? If we can help you in any way, if we can help you in obeying the gospel by faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, or help you in coming back to the Lord, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing to encourage you.